0: Before the next episode of X-Job Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. My name is Paul Maliri, and for 30 years I served with Essex Police. During that time, I interviewed suspects for murders, rapes, extortions, and violent crimes. Now, I interview former members of the police and military and others who have done exceptional things in their lives. Sit back and listen to X-Job Downloaded. This interview is being tape-recorded. My name is Paul Maliri and this is X-Job Downloaded and today I'm going to interview Ammon Taylor. Now, Ammon is a former member of Essex and the City of London Police and is now working in private industry. Good evening, sir.
1: Evening, Paul. Thanks for having me.
0: That no. was a lovely
1: intro there. Uh, <laughs> I've had a bit of practice over the years. But
0: where did it all begin for you, and what was your inspiration to join the police?
1: So, I mean, there's, there's been a few sort of spins on this, and if I think if, if you were a psychologist, you'd probably take it all the way back to my childhood. Take um, it, back, son. Take it back. We, I'll, take, I'll take it all the way back. So, no rush. I had a bit of a traumatic childhood. Um my my dad was particularly violent to my mum. Um he used to beat her up and um a big drinker. Um and then one day he took it too far and he strangled her. Um she lost consciousness, stopped breathing, um, and she was paralyzed from the neck down. It was in and around the same sort of time. Do you remember when um, Christopher Reeve Superman, when he had the when he had the accident? So
0: yeah.
1: sort of gauging it around that. So I was five when that happened. I'm um, thirty-seven, 37, 38 uh, thirty-eight now, kind of thirty-eight. And so um yeah, my mum was paralysed from the neck down. My dad went to prison. Um I grew up with my grandparents with my sister. So a bit of a bit of a shit start, really. Um so I think a little bit probably subconsciously was born out of the fact that I wanted to do right by people and sort of avenge what my dad had done. Um and then a little bit was the fact that I just wanted to drive around in fast cars and, and lock up bad people. Um so um It was a little bit of both, I guess. And when I came out of school and college, um, I saw there was an an opening to do the police cadet. So I joined as a police cadet at 17 and a half at Essex. And um, that's where it all really started. So 17 and a half through to uh, 2020 when I left um, City of London and did some really, really interesting jobs with some really good people whilst I was there.
0: So let me take you back to your childhood, if you don't mind me doing so. What's your background? What's your parents' background?
1: Yeah, so it's a mix. So my dad's Indian and um, Mum's English. So mix. So probably quite difficult for my mum growing up in the in this sort of well growing up and, and being married in the eighties, being married in a mixed race relationship. So that was probably a massive challenge to start with growing up in Southall. So I've still got family that live that way. But obviously when this all happened when I was five, I moved out to Essex, which is, you put yourself my accent, where I've been ever since, so very much sort of Essex indoctrinated, I guess.
0: Nothing wrong with that. Uh, do you have anything to do with your dad now?
1: No, no, um, no, not after. I met him a couple of times out of curiosity when I was a kid um, because you're curious because you want to know. I didn't sort of really understand it, but then as I got older, I, um, yeah, distanced myself. But
0: well, And what about your family in Southall? Do you Nothing to yeah, do.
1: very rarely speak to them. It's, it all become like really sort of fragmented, really. And it, it becomes quite awkward. This is probably, this is one of the first times I've really spoken about it. And the only other person I really speak to about it is my wife. But gun's quite awkward because I got to a point when I was a kid and I'd see them, they'd overcompensate for what he'd done. So they'd treat me differently. And you sort of sit in the middle because I wasn't, I wouldn't describe myself as an Indian. I didn't even speak like a word of the language. I spoke like broken broken english slash Essex accent so i didn't fit in i didn't fit into either camp so i wasn't really i wasn't my mum's kid and I wasn't my dad's kid so it was a it was a strange time growing up really
0: how, how long did your dad get
1: he done well i think he did end up doing about 12 13 years something like that oh um yeah he did he did quite a while he had some interesting stories as well so one thing he did tell me was that he he shared um he a himself with Winston Silcott. He had some interesting stories about the people that he sort of knocked about with in prison and stuff and the times that I did meet him. Well, it's, it's
0: funny, because, I say funny, that's probably not the yeah. right word. But Winston Silcott, um, to my recollection, was in the same, he was in the same wing as Jeremy Bamber. And yeah. Jeremy Bamber helped him with his appeal. Because I, I worked with a man called Roy Dennis, who's absolutely superb, and he, yeah. was, he was involved in, he was a police officer, and he, you know, he did a lot of work around that. Mm. But your your Indian background, mm. you don't speak any Punjabi or no, no Gu-
1: whatsoever. Uh, no, that's that's, that's interesting. Mad, isn't it? I, I mean, it's some of those things. So I've got some friends now that so they're, they're Sikh. My family. I've got some friends now, when I've got one of my mates who I bumped into in the gym. Funny enough, who's the kindest, biggest bear you'll ever meet? He's about twenty stone of muscle, um, but. When you actually break him down, he's he's soft, and and he's Sikh, bringing up his son as a as a as a Sikh, and um, he's promised me some basically some like lessons in my heritage. Because now I'm older, it's weird, isn't it? I, I actually want to understand it, and I want to <laughs> I want to delve into it some more, um, because I never got that because my my English side of my family they wanted to distance me mis- like me as much as possible from from that and what had happened. So. I never grew up with any of that. So it's a running joke in my family that I can't I can't spend too much time in the sun because I sunburn and I don't even like hot food. So I can't even eat a curry without <laughs> without without getting seriously ill.
0: i you the, the reluctant seek in this episode.
1: Yeah, I've got another nickname, but I won't say it on here. But I've got a yeah, I've got another nickname which is given to me. But um, yeah, so I didn't really get any of that. I've got, got a little bit of the colour and my kids have got the colour, which is which is lovely. Um, but other than that, really, it's not. I don't really know much about it.
0: Well, you see, Bob Marley said, if you know your history, then you know where you're coming from. All right. Yeah, yeah. If you, I think it's right, that everybody finds out about what their history is and where, you know, where they're from, because otherwise you can't make a, an informed judgment about it. No, it's, uh, My wife's family are uh, Anglo-Indian. Her grandmother was born out in India, blah, blah, blah. And I would love to go out there. And they were from the Punjab, you know, yeah. railway workers and all that malarkey. And I would absolutely love to go out. there. Yes. Your dad's locked up. Your yeah. mum's seriously unwell as a direct result of the injuries that he's inflicted on her. Yeah. And nan and granddad basically but- bring you up.
1: Yeah, reluctantly brought me up. I think that's probably the best way of saying it. So they weren't really prepared for it, though. In in fair fa- in fairness, no, so they had, they had a business. They um, my granddad had like a successful plastics business, which called AmLaw, which was mine and my sister's name, Ammon and Lauren. Um, so they loved us, but they weren't prepared for it. Like they were prepared to sort of go ahead and retire, but suddenly they had two kids thrust into them. They had oh. all the stuff to sort out with my mum. My mum was in hospital. She was in in a coma for the best part of a year um before she finally came out and then but then obviously all the damage is done so all the time you're not getting the opportunity to your brain your brain's starving and dying so the bulk of her brain had died and another thing which was confusing for a kid to understand was uh where different parts of your brain deal with different t- types of your emotions don't they she'd get quite she'd get she'd laugh when it was bad news and she'd be upset when it was good news but it's because her, um her brain was completely muddled so um yeah she's been like that she's still here now she's she's not not doing too great now because she's on palliative care, but um, she's had she's seen through and seen my kids and everything, um, so she's she's had the best of a, a a bad situation, I'd say. So, but I mean, I don't really, I don't. When you said about sort of knowing where you come from, and where you are, and who you are, I think a hell of a lot of the things that have gone on in my life have sort of crafted me to the person that I am today, and including the policing bit, but all the the trauma and stuff like that actually crafts you to be. A better person. And now I look at it for my kids and think, I know exactly the way in which I want them to be brought up and the way that I don't want them brought up. So it's, um, I never want anyone to feel sorry for me or sit there. Because when you tell people, they go, oh, so sorry. You know, how can you apologize for someone else's actions? Uh, But but do you think, I mean, are your grandparents still with us? uh, My grandmother is, yeah, granddad's dead. Right. Uh,
0: but you, but you know the the big influences on your life, and they've probably moulded you into the. If they have had a work, good work ethic, they've yeah. moulded you into the man that you are today. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not about apologising. I think we we say, oh, look, I'm sorry about someone dying, all that, because in our heart we feel sorry, not yeah. not sorry for what's happened to you, but be, because we know how we grieve and how we deal. Yeah. with things. Do you think? And we'll go on to your 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 policing, stuff but do you think that the way you dealt with victims was influenced by the way that you were a victim yourself as a child
1: yeah I think I think the empathy side of things definitely helped um seeing it from other people's point of view um without a shadow of a doubt that I've had some some gauge in the way that I dealt with victims I think um I think I probably already had that in me to a certain extent because I think I probably got a lot of that from my mum because my mum is is known for being like particularly empathetic and she was known to be a good listener and to try and always a problem solver and trying to see the best in people so I think part of that is probably just passed down to me but I think there's definitely an element probably at the time I probably didn't even realise it was there but looking back when I think about how I deal with people that's why I did okay and I did I, I thought I was a, a good response officer let's say when I was in Essex because people would talk to me because I'd listen so um, and quite often, you you know what it's like. You're going back to back to job. You don't have time for a cup of tea in between jobs, and you can quite easily become sort of desensitised to the situations because you're dealing with them back to back. So- Mass-
0: massively. And and when you come to deal with domestic abuse, which is when I joined, dealing with domestic abuse was completely different to the way that we dealt with it when I left, albeit yes. seven years ago now. Yeah. Do you think your life's influences? affected the way you dealt with domestic violence victims?
1: I don't know. I don't think, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Because I it is, it is a fine, fine line and I don't think many um, serving coppers would say, but when you go to back to back, because domestics was the thing I went to the most when I was in Essex, when you go back to back to domestics and you hear um, the same or similar allegations by sometimes the same and similar people, it becomes very difficult to try and see the see, the, it, see the wood through the trees in terms of what is actually true, what's not, and how you deal with it. So I don't think a lot of, I don't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question really. I, th-
0: I think that the police have got a very difficult job when it comes to dealing with domestic violence now because what you actually want is the victim to nail their colour to the masts mm. and just say, yeah, he or she, they have done this and we'll support you. Yeah. The police get a lot of flack when the victim doesn't support the action of the old bill and Mm -hmm. then they become the victim of a fatal attack or, you know, a sustained attack, which is which is going to cause them problems in the long term. If it had just and it was different in your mum's time and I'm not I'm not looking at it from that perspective. Yeah. Because they didn't have the support then. 32 years ago, there wasn't the support Uh, around domestic violence that there is now. And You just want the victims to trust them, because actually it's very, very labour intensive to keep going back to the same victim, to keep dealing with the same issue when they don't want to support a prosecution or any positive action by the police. They don't want to do it.
1: I mean, I remember. And also what, what, when I was in the police, there was loads of different policy changes around the ways in which you were expected to deal with domestic uh, violence.
0: Yeah. So
1: I remember at one point there was a, a policy brought in that the first one to make the accusation would be the first one that gets lifted. And I remember thinking, well, how does that work? So because so, we all know that from going to these domestic like, um, claims of assault, they're not always true. And we also know that there is malicious allegations within that. But um, you end up victimizing the victim potentially because you ended up or you lifted them both they both make allegation you both lift them and you've got to make a split decision as well and in mind, i joined the police when i was 18. so i was a kid going to domestics and trying to give people life abuse when i hadn't even really had a domestic in my life so um a lot of pressure on on you to make a decision all right I, i did it with um sort of older more experienced officers but a lot of pressure to make the right decision in a split decision which is going to affect someone and they're either going to get locked up for x amount of hours it was late in the night they're going to get locked up till the morning to get dealt with and um, implications with children and and families it was um it was a lot but i don't I honestly don't think that what happened to my mum affected the way that i dealt with with the people that were there i don't think i would have dealt with uh, say like the male aggressor any any harsher because of what had happened because you just uh, yeah it didn't even cross my mind really um so talk me through the the
0: time that you decided that you were going to become because you were a cadet first weren't you
1: yeah one of one of few i was the second intake back so there was one before me which was like a reintroduction of the cadets and then i was in the second intake so i think they ditched it after that
0: but so this is 2002
1: yeah so yeah I joined in 2004 so it'd been about two, yeah 2002 2003 so so you're there
0: and you see an advert for police cadets or how did that all work
1: I think my nan told me about it actually like because I, I, my nan was always worried that I was going to go the other route I think so because of what happened I think she always thought well, wow, he, he, he's the sort of person that could could venture onto the wrong path so I think she um brought it to my attention and then help she helped me write the application so that I could go for it. I did went through um like an assessment it wasn't an assessment centre like they do now, but it was like an assessment day and then I had an interview um and then I got offered the the cadets. But around that sort of time I was pretty turbulent in my behaviour, if I'm honest. She kicked me out. So whilst I was uh, a yeah, yeah she kicked me out yeah. So I was actually I was a police cadet at Rayleigh but I was living on a sofa um around a friend's house. So we didn't even have an iron. So I remember getting bollocked when I went in because my shirt wasn't ironed, uh, but I didn't have an iron because I didn't have any money. So, and I was getting 500 quid, 500 quid a month is what I got uh, for being a police cadet. But I managed to get through the year just about. And then the beautiful thing about it at the end was I sat down with the boss who was the old superintendent for Basildon and he just sat me down. And he said, well, how's it been? I said, yeah, it's been, this is, this is my formal interview to go from cadet to to full-fledged officer. He went, how's it been? I said yeah I think I've done all right he went all right well we'll see you in a few months time We'll see you back here and that was it that was my formal interview from cadet to I think he'd obviously done his background and spoken to the tutors and everything yeah but cause... um but yeah straight from there to
0: who was, was the superintendent then it, it, it was
1: Graham Carey
0: oh great
1: <laughs> yeah Graham Carey was that was the man that sat me down uh and he, was he, I think it was a super at the time. He might not have been a super, but I think he might have been. Um, but, yeah, he was the one that gave me my sort of final passing out interview to to join join the regulars and then straight up to Ashford at 18 and a half. So. And, and they
0: had irons at Ashford, didn't they?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Mind oh, you, were we gone to the black
1: shirts by then? No, was no, there? no, it was in white shirts, yeah. White shirts. Yeah.
0: When I yeah. joined,
1: were blue. Yeah, I've seen them. There are warrant car pictures we were wearing the blue ones. So uh, I loved well, Ashford, though. I absolutely loved it. at the time of my life because I was 18 and a half and a little bit of beer money in my pocket. We had the um, shopping centre around the corner, so I was already kitted up in the nicest clothes and um, going out on a Thursday night in the town. Uh, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, Do you know, when when I, when I when I went there in
0: 1986, 87, so I went December eighty six. i can't remember was it 14 weeks we were there whatever we were there for the first half we had to leave the bar at a particular time it was like 10 o'clock we had to yeah. leave the bar. it's only when you're on a senior course you could stay until 11 yeah it was it was absolutely and you weren't allowed off off camp at a certain time and yeah, it was just it was different, but yeah. I I liked it. I was only twenty one then, so I liked yeah. it.
1: I liked it when I went though. They there was loads of comments about the fact. Actually, the time that I went, an interesting little story was just I. So I went in the I want to say December or January. I went. I think it was just the January it might have just just after Christmas. Do you remember that secret policeman? The documentary. Yeah. There was the, there was the coppers that were on the, on site on the Centrex site and they cut all the holes in the in their pillows. Um. It, that was just ed it was ed whilst i was there right so everyone there was was looking around and looking over your shoulder thinking who's going to bubble me up and they had these little things on the wall these integrity boxes and you could anonymously leave um feedback about another member of of of, of your team that was there um, and bubble them up so it was quite weird because we watched it in the class and we got they told us to turn it off and so everyone was nervous because we you, you were thinking well where's the journalist because if they're at that one, they're probably going to be at this one.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: Where did you go to when you left Ashford? Then
1: I come back from there and went to I went to Essex. So I went um I, I went back to started at Wickford, Wickford Police Station. Then did Ricky and then went over to Pitsy. Worked at Pitsy, and Pitsy was brilliant. I love Pitsy. Um, yeah,
0: there's some interesting. Bazardon's is a great place to work.
1: Yeah, I tell you to get yeah to learn your trade. Um, Wickford and Ricky not so much because you didn't really get as much of the the action. But Basildon, when you start working in Basildon and you're dealing with every single type of different crime and different people and different levels of criminals, it was just really really good fun and absolutely back to back packed. And you're working in such a team. I've never encountered a team like it since, where you know every single person on that team and, and you can you could you could trust every single person on that team of your life. Um, Just really, really like incredible little atmosphere and team.
0: How did you find? I mean, you know, you come from an Asian background. Yeah. Albeit you don't speak any language and you don't like curry, but that's. Uh, Yeah. But you can't. Did you ever find any issues by the fact that you had come from a diverse background?
1: Yeah. I I got it in Essex quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I say quite a bit. I say that's probably an exaggeration. I had a few, a few, um, a few runners. Actually, I've got a funny story because it just reminded me of. When I was in custody, so I was in custody, and I, I wasn't even dealing with this guy. And as I was walking away from the cell, the custody sergeant said, "Can you just walk him down to his cell, pop him in his cell?" And as I walked him towards his cell, he he said to me, "He went, f off you coffee coloured spick." And I turned around and I thought, "Did he just say that?" So I said, "What did you just say?" And he was like, "And this is how quick wit, how quick witted and thinking this guy was." He went, "I said, get me a coffee quick." I thought. Car, you thought of that right on the spot. He got nicked for for racially aggravated public order, but um, I got a little bit of it actually. I got more toward the end of my service when I worked in the city of London because I used to deal with um, I used to deal with uh, in in insurance fraud and I dealt with quite a lot of uh, like the Asian population, Bradford, Birmingham. Um, and there was a lot of you could tell there was a lot of distrust in me because they thought one, they thought I could understand what they were saying when they'd talk amongst themselves, which I couldn't. Um, and two, because I was Asian and I'm investigating Asian people, so I got a bit more of that. I'd say when I did the insurance forward side of things, but yeah, little bits and bobs. Nothing internally, nothing from. I like to see all this stuff about sort of racism in the police and stuff, but nothing from any of my colleagues. I got a lot of, and and there is a. I know the difference between what is was banter between colleagues and what is out and out racism or homophobic or sexist. A lot of banter, and it was banter between. My colleagues, which I give back to them, um, but never any out and out racism because we were just, you're such a, close. like I said, I've never, I don't think I'll ever work in any other team where you're that close knit that you rely on each other that much. So. Do you
0: know what? Oh, I love you for that because I just get so thoroughly fed up with people not differentiating between the, the fact that there's banter yeah. and out and out racism. Yeah, jokes are jokes, and I accept that there's always going to be somebody that's going to be offended by it. But you know, mm. well, done you mate,
1: Back there's in. a there's a there's a there's a fine line, like and and it was it, you know you know when you know where you stand and you know where you stand with people, and also you gauge you gauge the people that you work with, don't you? So you know what you can say to your colleagues. You know what's not going to upset people. You know what might upset people, and you avoid those those topics and. Yeah, I never, ever experienced anything, anything adverse from any of my colleagues in the whole time that I worked with. And, and you've got to think, when I worked at Basildon, there was me, there was one other lad, Al Platienko, who's, I want to say, maybe maybe a Sri Lankan background. And there was one black guy for Basildon. So there was three, three people from an ethnic background for the whole of Basildon. So that was across Pitsy, Basildon, Landon, Ricky and Wickford. There was three of us. I never right. got a problem and um, actually there's a couple of custody sergeants as well Um but never ever did would i say that i've got a problem and like i said there is there's loads of little bits of bad i mean the thing about me not being able to eat curry and getting sunburned and that sort of thing all stuff that you take in in jest but i give as give as good as i got so yeah you yeah. say
0: having, having a laugh doesn't make you a racist we know
1: no no, no. We, know, we know what
0: racist racists are we know yeah. how disgusting they are, and how there is no place for people like that in this world, none at all. And no. I've talked with them. You know, when I was the DCI over at Harlow, the guy that was leading Britain first, he got arrested down in Tommy Robinson. No, there was another fella, Gold something. Uh, and but they were they were vile characters. Yeah, you know, really vile. I worked on the on murders, Combat eighteen murders. Yeah. A, a public order, EDL rallies, all that yeah.
1: shit. I've done my fair share of EDL rallies and I loved them. I absolutely loved them because I'm not, not mocking what they were doing, but I'll give you an example. Standing outside the Old Bailey and they were there for, um, there was an attempted terrorist attack by a group of Asian people. I think it was an EDL rally and they were going up there. They were stopped in the car on the way up there. I think what? this was the story. They had a load of firearms in the boot, but the the coppers never searched the car. When they got it back to the Nick, it had loads of firearms and stuff in there. So all these EDL um, mob turned up outside the old Bailey to protest. And I went round and just asked them all one single question. So I thought, I just want to see what the answer was. I said, what's the name of one of the defendants in this case? Not one of them could tell you, could tell me who they were. Um, but so much hatred, like absolute out and out hatred. Um, they're brain dead, mate. Yeah, they're,
0: they're absolutely brain dead. I, I went with John Hater. Um, we did uh, one up in Leicester, E.D.L., and we had uh, a, a lad on our carrier, Asian lad, and he got. It, they were vile, yeah. vile to a point where people had to be nicked because otherwise they were just going to get worse. Yeah. And it was just honestly, it, it makes my blood boil. Yeah. So you you do your time in the in the Basin division. Yep. LPA, whatever it was in, was it part of South LPA then, or
1: was no, it Bazan? No, yeah, it was. It was just and it, well, I think merged, merged, merged with Thurrock
0: um, yes.
1: before I'd left. Um, but it weren't really a merger as such. You, you just it was still t- two separate divisions really. Yeah. Um, we really, very rarely went to Thurrock to help, and they were, very rarely came to us. I don't
0: know. Uh, Where did you go? To, did you spend all your time there before you went to the city?
1: Pretty much, yes. I was, yeah, I was spazzled in um, uniform right the way through, left when I was at Pitsy, was when I left. I was at Pitsy, I know, I was Wickford, then I went back to Pitsy, Uh, but we had a skipper come over from the city. He came over, got promoted, then went back to the city, and he said, I think you should come to the city, you'll love it. And he he recommended the support group, so the TSG for the city. So that's where I went. I applied for that, did the hardest physical, and I think I'm a fairly fairly physical lad, did the hardest physical I've ever done in my life. Really? Um, yeah absolutely beasted me Um yeah we had I can tell you exactly what it was so we had to run the shield run in full kit public order kit then when you got back from the shield run you had a minute to recover then you had to do 20 short shield sprints um, up and back and then you had a minute to recover and then you had an enforcer carry and you had to run the enforcer the length of of um of Gravesend you had to run it the length with it on your shoulder and um, It was relentless. Obviously, and we warmed up before that as well. So, we'd already done some runs and stuff in kit before that. Absolutely relentless to get in. So, people being sick, people were in the right state. But I got, I trained really hard for it because I wanted it. So, I got it. But yeah, so I went into the support group, did the, had a brilliant time really because I joined it with student riots. So, straight into the student riots, got a little bit of that, um, not too much. And then we're into the London riots. So, and that was up with them. Yeah, you what? Sorry, up with them. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. We did have an operation, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never know. I do you know, all, all I remember is sleeping in a squash court with like thirty other blokes, um, and girls. While in the middle of all of the, while it was all going on, it was um, it was nuts. August, two thousand eleven. Two thousand eleven. Yeah.
0: yeah. I I went up there on the carriers from Essex. Yeah, and it was but, it, it was great, wasn't it? I mean, it was yeah. I, it was horrendous because things were getting burnt and things were being thrown at us and it was... But the camaraderie, if there was ever people being banded together and very few people lost their bottle, I mean, and it was it was quite hairy.
1: Yeah, I remember one, one of the governors saying to me, he was like, do not get separated because he said, if you get separated from me, you are going to get killed.
0: killed. Uh, yeah, and,
1: you, and, they're also, and you're running around, it's late at night, you've got stuff on fire. Your, gogg- your your visor was always steamed up mine was always steamed up so i couldn't see anything in front of me anyway and um, yeah it was it was hairy but it was exactly what i trained for so that's why i loved it so much because it was exactly what you trained for
0: and it didn't matter how much fairy liquid you put on the inside of your visor no it never
1: worked it never worked
0: uh, it always, it
1: always i mean some some smart bloke that, that was on the van i remember he had um because he, I, I, he had a, he obviously had a motorbike and you could get like this second film that went on the inside, stopped him from f- from fogging up. Uh, well, I never thought to spend two quid to save my life potentially, um, just running around in the dark hoping that something didn't hit you. Uh, or you don't fall over something. Or you don't fall over, yeah. Uh, yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, yeah. But it comes to an end. It comes to an end because I just thought after I did that, then I went into the city, and we're doing loops of the city. There wasn't a huge amount going on, so.
0: But you used to get. I mean, I don't know what it was like then, but now I see them at West Ham all the time. Yeah. they get deployed to the football, and I always remember when I was at Ashford. They were deployed everywhere, you know, because there were riots in the city. You had your police, yeah. so they'd always get on a on a mutual aid deployment somewhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we got used quite a bit for in the met a lot. We got used a lot, a lot in the in the met. So um, we were we were level one. So you get put in with the other level ones. So there was like an elite. You were like the elite tier. So you wouldn't get used on some of the level two stuff. But what I found was after doing it for a little while, I didn't do it forever. But the level twos were normally the ones that get deployed in first. So they were normally the ones that actually got to go in and deal with the disorder. And you'd be on standby around the corner listening on the radio to people screaming waiting for a governor to say "Yeah, put your helmets on you're going in so we we were quite often on the periphery i guess of what was going on because the level twos were always the ones that were deployed first so i did enjoy it though i mean it was a it was it was a good job go to the gym in the the day as well go and train and look after yourself so now when i think back to it actually how bloody easy it was when you compare it to being in the private sector Um,
0: um well, that, that said, I mean, I will I will come back to that. And the reason I say that is when I was in the when I was in the job, when I was in the job, hmm. if I said to you, can you do us a favour, I'm going off duty now. I want that report on my desk before I come home, uh, before I come back to work in the morning.
1: Yeah.
0: I know that you would do me that report. Yeah. Or, or someone like you would do me the report. There mm-hmm. you go. A, we're doing a reminder. Right, I want all the papers. Yeah. I, want, I, want I knew that was done. In the private world... If somebody comes, if I go to someone and say, "Oh, you know, can we do this?" Yeah, yeah, I'll get it done. Sometimes that can take months. Yeah, yeah. There isn't that sense of urgency in the private sector that there is in the police.
1: I think. I mean, I've so I've seen it from both sides, and like now, obviously, I'm working for different types of companies, but. I think, I mean, the company that I work for now are, are brilliant because we're small and we're we're reactive. So if something comes in at eight o'clock at night, someone rings me up and says, I've got this urgent need. I'll go and do it anyway. But I would have done it anyway, regardless of what company I'm in. But what I have seen is when you deal with the big, bigger companies and as companies get bigger, you get so many different levels of bureaucracy and red tape, the same you would do in the police. So yeah. things do take a lot longer. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's just it's just part of the course and also you get lots of different people within different job roles that have to do different levels of authorization so some of the brands that we deal with on a global scale something which we can do in five minutes can take them two weeks yes yeah. so and yeah. it also comes down to the type of people and team you've got so my little team now is effectively like a little old school um response crew that we all help each other out so if
0: That's anyone
1: cool. anyone needs needs my help i'll give it to them and and vice versa. I don't think there's, and I don't think that will change, regardless of how big we get as a company, because it's ingrained within us. We're all very, very similar types of people. So I think you'll, you will always be, always be that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you've come off of the City of London TSG. Yeah. What do you do next?
1: Well, I, I went for the mate. I went for the money and the fame from that because. I got a a nod from, I went into, I did a bit of crime squad actually, did a bit of plain clothes walking around the city, which was good fun. Um, And then one of the uh, governors I was friendly with, I used to go to the gym with, he used to be on the crime squad, said, You should have a look at insurance fraud. So I thought, Well, I don't really want to go and investigate insurance fraud. But he said, Look, we're, We've, we're privately funded unit, so you can get your DCs. So I went over to in the, um, it's called IFED at the time, got my DCs and started investigating insurance fraud. Um, it was the first thing I investigated as a DC, so I didn't do the, the sort of natural progression of CID. I didn't want to, if I'm honest, because the CID in the city was investigating what I dealt with in uniform, because um, it's very different. So, um, because you don't really get that much major crime as such in the, in the city. So, um, yeah, I went into IFED and I absolutely loved it. I was saying to you earlier, I got on, got myself on TV, on claimed and Chained. Um buzzing around the country, going and investigating insurance fraud. Um, quite complicated as well, really, for someone that's quite simple and quite straightforward and simple. Um, and especially when you have to look at financial accounting and stuff, stuff I'd never looked at before. Um, so yeah, but that was brilliant. I loved it.
0: And what levels of fraud would you deal with? I mean, let's talk about from the lowest. Mm. fraud right the way through to the the upper echelon
1: so the so the lowest would be like and we did days like this operation days on slip and trip so you'll get people that will feign a slip in a supermarket and put in a dodgy claim then right the way through to um sort of i guess the mo- the, the highest level of um crime that i dealt with was looking at organized an organized ocg that were organizing and staging uh, crash for cash collisions um, and then the support behind that, which, which for credit, hire companies, solicitors, bad actors, solicitors, doctors that were, were assisting with with um, medicals being provided for people that didn't exist. Um there was the whole chain. So and I did some from that. I did some some other bits, like some surveillance operations, actually looking and following people around as they did crash for cash um collisions. So and, and uh, from that, I got. I got skilled enough in putting together surveillance operations and authorities to put myself in a little bracket which put me sort of it made me different from everyone else so because no one else wanted to do it whereas i did because i wanted i wanted to do surveillance because i wanted to go out and follow people around so i got quite good with with authorities uh, and writing authorities first one took me weeks um and then i carried that through to the next job where I I worked in insurance um, intellectual property crime, I oh, carried that through and started doing using covert tactics that had not been used before, and so I crafted myself out a, a completely niche and made myself completely different to everyone else. So, and and I love doing it as well. And I got so good at doing it like writing a, uh, an authority or a ripper for, um, so a phone authority or writing a ripper, I could do it in half an hour an hour depending on what it was. Um, also, I got myself some exposure to the people I wanted to be exposed to, so I went up to see the commissioner to get my authorities um, sworn. Uh, I was out, out sitting in front of a superintendent to go out, go down there and talk about the operation and give them operational updates, going out briefing surveillance teams on the ground. Um, so I got to do things which put me, made me different to everyone else and gave me a little bit more experience in, in presenting. And my whole idea at, at this point wasn't actually to get out of the job, It was just to do something more, a bit more exciting rather than sitting behind a desk. So but it's as a result of all of that and then exposure to working with private industry, insurance companies, um, brands and that sort of thing. I started putting it all together and thinking, well, actually, with all of these transferable skills and all these things that I'm doing, I could take this outside and I could leave. Yeah. So, I mean, I enjoyed the covert stuff, but um, yeah, it took up a lot of my time a hell of a lot of my time yeah it definitely it definitely helped because um i did stuff that other people couldn't do and i got to go i stayed away in hotels i was pitching up all these operations i was dealing with all these different surveillance things from different areas i loved it i absolutely loved it um, and no one else really in the city put together anything there was a crime squad there they used to put together some operations and they were really good Um, but no one else in my department we did some online covert stuff as well which is pretty good fun. Um, yeah. yeah I mean the, the the online stuff is
0: a massive bit of work now, isn't it yeah it's huge yeah and there's some great people in the city i mean, we've I've still got some really good friends there and they they are the experts around the IP world and yeah because they've got the funding they've got the funding yeah. For the industry
1: yeah uh, the, that's the biggest thing you've got the funding and you've got the um you've got the resource you got the time so yeah. whereas other other forces you'd be sitting on like 30 crimes and 35 crimes and with 30 named suspects you can actually craft out your day and, and actively target people that you want to target and give them the time you could do your subscribers you can start looking at your sales site I mean for my insurance fraud job my big one that I I worked on this for a long time got the guy charged and then he fled the country ended up in Afghanistan um, after we told him we need to remand this guy and um he fled the country and then his missus sent me pictures of him standing with a tank in afghanistan and spoke to cps and they were like can't do anything about it can't get him back can't extradite him because if we try to extradite him he'll probably get it they'll probably do him in in afghanistan because of the nature of the crime um but i had all my cell site was brilliant i could i could sell him that every single crash that i was trying to prove we had covert footage of him crashing the cars into people we had all, all the in reverse yeah, all the fuck, fo- well, just, just breaking at a roundabout, come up to a roundabout. But they were, the other thing was that really did piss me off is was they, they were targeted. So they would, they'd, they'd drive around, look for a young driver, old driver, because they know that they're the people that would, would just swallow it. And so it was their fault. So um, yeah, we had everything. I had everything on this bloke. I had a book under his bed where he documented all the other crashes he was involved in, all the cars. Uh, brilliant. Followed him off, got him bailed. Got him back from the police station. We followed him off surveillance. Uh, followed him off. No driving license. Straight in a car. And um, it was brilliant. It was so much fun. It was in Bourneville It was, um, where they where they made the chocolate. The chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Is, so, I, is I mean, it is good and it is interesting. Whatever anybody says, it is yeah. really interesting.
1: Yeah. I don't think any other in any other job you get an experience like that that would set you up. And the one thing I do find that, which is a little a little I mean, it takes a little bit of adjustment, but when you, when I deal with people outside and I'm in the private industry, they haven't got a clue what I've done. They haven't got a clue the investigations that you've done. Uh, and sometimes when you get treated like a, a clown, or someone talks to you like a clown, you think well, you haven't you haven't got a clue. You haven't no. gone you you haven't gone and stood on someone's doorstep and told them that their their husband's been killed in a in a fatal car accident, and you've got to break it to their wife and kids that, that aren't expecting the knock on the door. You haven't picked up a body off the road. You haven't been first or second on the scene of a of a, a fatal stabbing or a murder and had to deal with that and had your boots seized the next like 10 minutes later. You haven't done these things or had these experiences in life which justify you sort of having a, a dim or downward view towards me. Because people don't understand policing. I think um, people don't understand the, the pressure that it has on you. Though. And being completely open the day I gave back my warrant card felt like a massive relief. Like, yeah, honestly, for me, it felt like a huge relief because I thought I'm being held. I've been held to a standard, and I'm not that I I ever wanted to suddenly then give up the badge and then go out there and, and be a terror away and start doing the things that I couldn't do because I, I was sort of hum, hamstrung by being a police officer. But I just thought, well, I, I'm held to you're held to an extremely high standard of what is expected of you, even down to the point where. I'd heard of stories that uh, some of my colleagues have been, even things off duty. Like you want to train someone, someone kicks off on a the train. There's the expectation you're going to step in because it's your duty. But what do you do when you when there's a group of blokes there and you're you're there with your kids, and and the expectation is I'm going to stand up and I'm going to get filled in in front of my kids. I didn't. I, I honestly felt it felt like a big relief for me that one I wasn't judged by such a high standard all the time if I go out and I get done for speeding, I don't panic because I think i have got to go back in until work and they might start interrogating me and asking questions. Also things like, I mean, working in fraud, like we had our vetting status, so, so they'd interrogate bank accounts and stuff like that, um, which in any other walk of life would never happen. And when you get outside and you miss a payment on a credit card or you fuck something up or you miss a loan payment or you get yourself in a bit of bother, if I went to my boss now and said, you know, I, I've missed a few payments on my credit card, he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't give two hoops. Doesn't, doesn't bother him in any way, shape or form. Uh, and I, I did it for long enough to think that, um, to know that there was the expectation that you're, that you, you are always supposed to be better than everyone else. And for me, it was a relief.
0: But, but that's a really interesting point because the the standards that you're setting yourself, you're absolutely right. You know, I absolutely believe in it. I remember part of the discipline code, and I don't know what it is now, but you weren't able to get yourself in debt.
1: Now, no, you're
0: not. Yeah. You weren't allowed to neglect your health. No, I mean, you used to get dental care and all that sort of stuff. But there were things that were written into the regs that would protect you as an individual because you wouldn't get into into trouble, and it was your guiding light. Hmm. Standards matter. As far yeah. as I'm i I believe standards matter.
1: I think we we talked about it before, about the standards. So like yeah. the standards, the standards for me throughout my policing career were started from the fact, well, when I joined at 18, like I said, everything was, it was, it was as close to being a regimented service as, as it could be in terms of what was expected of you. But I think we talked about it, that bloke with a hair like that, um, that that image got me. But um, I, the way I'd look at it and the way I still uh, objectively look at it now as a non-police officer, as a member of the public, is that if someone if I phone the police, I'm finding the police because I need their help. Um, and yeah. I, I actually need someone to turn up and do something that I can't physically do myself. So the first thing I was taught was like it was a, was around presence. So the first thing you, when you turn up on a scene was your officer presence. So it was the fact you turned up, you looked the part. Don't even know it does not matter whether or not you can can or can't do the job. You look the part, you're a uniformed officer turning up in a uniform, looking uniform looking smart and clean and tidy. Um if you didn't get that bit right, then how do you expect to do the the other bits? I mean, I'm like clearly covered in tattoos now, but I never ever wore short sleeves ever. Even when we got the option to to go to short sleeves I didn't because I didn't want a member of the public, I didn't want to turn up at a elderly victim that's been a victim of an artifice burglary that just had someone coming in rooting through her cupboards and turn up for and for her to feel intimidated by me when I'm supposed to be there helping her so standards were standards were extremely high in, in this support group they're even higher shaving every single day you had to be immaculate in the support group because everyone looked immaculate so yeah standards are extremely important
0: and, and the image we're talking about is the 24 hours in custody that was a, a Bedfordshire PC, and I'm sure that he's a really nice chap. I'm sure he's a lovely chap. I don't doubt it. I'm sure he does a great job. But it is public perception, and and uniformity is exactly that. And I think that the whole thing, you know, like I say, I sound like my dad, but standards really do matter. And unless we stop having... Uh, constabularies and start having a force again, you know, the City of London Police Force or the yeah. Essex Police Force. Um, we're knackered. We're absolutely as as society's knackered. And I don't know how you feel about it. I don't know how you feel about it, but there are so many small groups now that represent so many different people that it deflects from the other work that's going on and the fact yeah. is that everybody should be treated with fairness and dignity and everything else yeah and if you're not if people are not treated fair there is a route that you can go down now because it's carved into legislation so if there's a discriminatory act that takes place over race sex whatever it may be your protected
1: characteristics
0: you you're but you're protected mm-hmm by legislation
1: yeah and that's one thing did you did you become a member of the bpa no i've got a funny story about that Go so on. when i was when i was eight i was 18 just joined the police force just joined essex i would there was um like an inductiony type set up at uh when we were at, um at chelmsford and a member of the black police association uh, black i'll say it right black police association lady came over to me and asked me whether or not i'd be interested in joining And I said not particularly no I'm not really that bothered and she came up with this stat and she said funny how you remember things and I can't remember why for breakfast but she said to me x amount of black prisoners were assaulted in custody over the last year so I said how many white uh how many white prisoners were assaulted in the same period then and she went well I don't know and I said well you can't come at me armed with half the facts so I said if you want me to and I said also I said why would I segregate myself when I'm joining this group of people, why would I segregate myself and class myself as a black police officer? Because I'm not a black police officer, I'm a police officer. Like the and and if I segregate myself as something different, I'm immediately saying I'm different. And the whole point of me joining is the fact that I'm not different. I'm doing the same job in the same uniform, I'm the same person. So so yeah, she she was really not happy with me either. Like really, really unhappy with me because I because I didn't want to join the Black Police Association. She made a beeline for me, and as soon as she started walking towards me, I thought I could see the way this is going. But I've always been fairly quick tongued and fairly quick witted, and when she said that, I said, "Just said, well, tell me the tell me the stats for the white police officer, uh, the white uh, prisoners that have been assaulted," and she couldn't give me the facts. So I said, "Well, come on with half the facts. You can come up, come up with half the truth." So, yeah, so I would never well, I don't get why you would segregate yourself into a, a into a different clique and immediately make yourself different. For me, I thought, actually, I thought, well, being like a young Asian officer, why would I or a young half Asian? Why would I want to put myself on a limb and say I'm different? Because because I don't see myself as different. I've never really seen myself as Asian, really, or ethnic background, really, because I just think I'm just I'm the same as everyone else. but. No, I wouldn't have even contemplated it. It went not It weren't something that ever crossed my mind. I wouldn't. I can't understand why you would anyway. So, and,
0: it's, and just, it's what I say. Do you know what? I've, and I've got a load of lovely friends that come from all walks of life. All right. So mm-hmm. I don't want anyone to think that I'm. I'm. That I'm not. You know, I'm not sympathetic to it. But I don't. I don't get it either. When there is so much legisla- legislation in place to support minority groups. I think it's absolutely right that people get supported. Yeah. But um, what, yeah,
1: was,
0: what was your inspiration to leave the police service? Why did you decide to?
1: Um, I mean, I get a lot of people ask me this and a lot of people ask me the question and say, oh, would you ever go back? So, I mean, on the second part, no, I'd never go back. And it, it wouldn't even cross my mind. It did for a little while. You go through this little period of grieving, I think. And I went through the period of grieving where I thought, what have I done? why have I why have I taken the step outside and made it so difficult for myself when I could have stayed so comfortable. So I went through that little period. But I got to the point where I, I thought I had more to offer on the outside than I did staying with what I was doing. And I started looking at the routes for progression and thinking about the long term and the bigger picture and thinking, well, if I want to go a promotion route, I know there's a I've got to sit a board and I know that certain people are earmarked for certain positions. I know it's going to be really difficult to get promoted. And to get myself to 60, 70, 80 grand, underground, wherever I want to be, that's going to take me the next 15, 20 years. If I if, if I if I got there, if I was liked, if my face fit, um, and that's the way that I saw it, it might have changed in terms of the promotion pr- process. But for me, I just thought, I've got no chance of doing that. I've done the bits that I like doing. And what do I do next? So, And I heard that people would, especially from the city, people get qualified. Get a few, get a few like letters behind their names, and then they go to the private sector and do well. So I wanted to go, and, I, and to be honest with you, I would have taken most jobs just to get out. So I, I, I think I. There was a, an element of being quite tactical about it in the jobs that I did because I exposed myself to private industry quite a lot. So I knew that I would get a chance somewhere else, but I, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. If I'm honest, when I left. No. Did that work for you though? I mean did you get
0: the the job that you anticipated getting?
1: Well yeah I mean I, I I think I made a mistake on the first job well I know I made a mistake so I went from a fairly comfortable role to running a private ambulance company so I went into an operations director role for um, managing two two trusts so North East London Foundation and London Northwest. West um, oh. and when I joined uh, so there was 100, about 120 staff across like remote locations fixed locations in a control room um and the expectation from the boss that took me on was because I was fairly organized and regimented and routined that I'd be able to breeze it but I joined when it was covid so uh, london northwest was the epicenter of covid pretty much for the uk yeah. so um and so we had I was trying to motivate staff to come to work to deal with covid patients that are earning just above the minimum wage um that are and, and and moving bodies as well, moving moving COVID bodies in and around the hospitals, picking up bodies from the community. We did a contract with Westminster, picking up bodies in the community um, and it was extremely difficult. It was the hardest thing I've ever done but it broke me. I'd um, After the best part of 18 months I was sat at home with my wife and I said I can't go to work today um, I couldn't get out. I couldn't couldn't leave the house. So at that point, I thought that's enough's enough. So, um, but yeah, I all kinds of all kinds of shit that you don't realise happens in the private industry. Like people recording me, trying to um, get me to say things while they were audio recording me with their phones in their pockets. And um, yeah, and I and I I, I, I uh, the same way I'm with you. Like I don't think I'm a pretty, particularly abrasive person. Not not oh. someone that, that gets on people's nerves. I was just trying to do what I thought was right by people. Um, but yeah, multiple suck-ins for different things, and there was a poor lady died whilst I was working, um, so I had to come in and deal with that. Um, a patient that died, um, yeah, tra- absolutely traumatic. Um, Eighteen months of my life that I wish I hadn't had done. Um, so, but you live and learn. So, and what does that
0: makes you stronger?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, and I mean. I don't think I could have done a bit more difficult to job at, at the time and I don't think I'll ever do another job like it. Uh, I think it was it, 10 times harder than working in the police. Um, really, really difficult job. Well paid, like, as in it was good money um, and I got a fancy title and at the time it takes you a while until you get a little bit older. Uh, I actually, I think I probably played on the title a little bit, operations director. I like left the police, driving around in Mercedes. I thought I thought I was winning at life, and um, when I left, I realised it, it none of it matters. Your title doesn't matter. Your your status doesn't matter. The car doesn't matter. The money that you're earning doesn't matter because you end up inevitably spending it. So for me, I went from that to a thirty grand a month. Uh, sorry, thirty grand a year. Thirty grand a month would be nice, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Thirty grand uh, thirty grand a year sales job. I went into, um, and I loved it absolutely loved it driving around in a crappy old van uh yeah so a bit of a fall from grace a little bit so what are you doing now so now this is where it gets exciting this is the bit where i've 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 sort of bumbled along so i i went so just to give you like this is the. this is one of the main reasons i wanted to come on your show really was to show police officers ex-police officers that they've actually got life and prospects on the outside so i went from a what would you could class as a crappy sales job in terms of pay, but the the, the job was brilliant. From that, I got picked off by another company and I was made the UK sales manager for um, a smartphone company. And then from that, a chance meeting between myself and where I am now, a, a technology company, a startup technology company. And now I'm employee number two in the business to business team selling IT to business. So um, anything from phones right the way through sort of services and Um, supports and support and licensing is what I sell now to business so um and from someone that isn't particularly technical either as in IT technical um to where I am now so there is definitely a route you've just got to find your route
0: but you've got the ability to communicate and I think that police officers in general
1: have that ability they just
0: don't realize it and Uh, some people don't practice
1: it either no, hundred percent. I think so. I mean, I did a post on it on LinkedIn about it about the transferable skills that that you take from policing that are fully transferable to the private industry. Like, I mean, the empathy thing and listening is is massive. I know I've done loads of talking today, but when I'm talking to a, a, a prospect, a customer, however you want to phrase it, potential new friend, um, I sit there and I listen, and I just sit back like you're doing, and I listen to what they're saying. I try and find. The, try and find the, 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 their pain points, which is exactly what you do when you're interviewing a victim or a witness. You're sitting there, aren't you? And you're trying to absorb all that information, ingest it all, and then uh, regurgitate it to them in a format that they're happy with, which is exactly what you do with a witness or a victim. And then the other part is your problem solving. So you're looking for a way of solving a problem that they have, which is totally transferable. And then the last bit really is just about um your relation relationship building and rapport and you spend i spent 15 years dealing with brilliant colleagues dealing with horrible people that i wouldn't ordinarily talk to but you've got to build a rapport with them because you want them to talk to you and doing hundreds if not thousands of interviews of people um and judging people on their body language the way they present and all of these different things and all these different tactics I think if you take all of that, which you can't, which is well, the other thing is, you can't quantify it on paper, which is difficult, which I think is what a lot of police officers face as a a problem, which what I had, because how do I say I'm a brilliant listener? I'm I'm, I'm brilliant at at talking to people and I'm brilliant at doing all these things because it means nothing. So I think the problem is how you quantify that into the private sector and go in and say, well, actually, this is what I can do for your business, because the other part is, a lot of you know from from your from your from your your company. A lot of companies will ask for relevant experience within a field. You haven't got it. No, you haven't. You haven't got it. It doesn't exist. But you probably got. You're probably better than some of their top performing people that work within that company. So. I mean, there's so many other things that that I use on a daily basis, like planning and like, like almost like my PNB, like I carry my book everywhere because I keep a record of everything that's been said, what's been done, my organisational skills, my planning, my meeting, my arranging my appointments in and around things that I want to do and people I want to speak to and um, forecasting for sales. All of these things are skills that you pick up from being in the police that are fully transferable, but it's how you quantify it. That's the difficult part, I think.
0: Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think you've put everything there in, in a nutshell. We sometimes undervalue the skills that we've got. And I th- and I find that very, very frustrating. My other frustration is that the removal of frontline staff, and by that I mean people not going out and taking statements. My w- wife witnessed yeah. a, a, a fatal road collision and they took the statement over the phone. Did they? But, but, you know... If I self-define as being my missus, yeah. they don't know they're talking to. No. I can be I can be Joanne. Yeah. I could be anyone I want to be now. And it's just it just doesn't make sense. And I, and the chief uh, the home secretary can insist that police officers attend all the dwelling burglaries. Mm. Chances are that it's not going to happen. Because it's tied yeah. to their computer systems.
1: You can't um but that's the, that that is that's not that's partly true in business as well. I mean, because I've been doing this a long time now outside the police and I've been working I work from home as you can see. So I spend I mean, I very rarely meet businesses face to face now. Nearly everything is done on Teams, um, or, or over the phone. There isn't very much in the way of physical interaction, probably off the back of COVID. Um I know it's different for, for the police, but um in the business world is I mean you get complete you get complete teams now that work from different areas of the world.
0: Yeah. And I and I get that. My lads in IT and you know he's his company are, are based in San Francisco. And it wouldn't be he couldn't just fly out to San Francisco for a meeting. I get all of that. You know, the 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 travel they must be saving fortunes in businesses for travel. But the networking mm. has still got to be in person. It can't yeah. possibly be uh, a continual I hate it you know I, I need to I need to see people I
1: need to meet human beings I like I love I love meeting people and and I mean I've just spent the t- today really trying to line up all my meetings for the rest of the month that are in person and I've made a conscious effort to try and get out more so that I'm actually seeing people because there's no way that you could beat a human connection when you shake someone's hand and you sit down with them and you understand them and you you can sit there and have a bit of food with them there is not there's nothing there's nothing like it and uh, to your point around the police and attending i mean even to your wife to come and see see you about that there's no way that uh, that anyone could sit here and comfortably say that they got the same quality of statement from your wife over the phone than they did in person it's impossible but, because you no, can't you can't do it and
0: and and she said oh my husband can take because i could i can still take a statement a type yeah. statement as well and yeah. I said, "Oh, no, i we'll would do it over the phone i thought well why? Yeah, I I can do an MG eleven. I'm not going to charge them for it. I can do an MG eleven as good as they can. Yeah, I'll get all the relevant points of law in there as well. But they did. They insisted on doing that. But
1: yeah, that's the way it is, mate. Yeah, I just don't. Yeah, I mean, I can't. I don't know. I don't even know. And this this might seem a little bit ignorant, but I mean, I don't watch the news. I don't really keep up with much in terms of current affairs. And so the only time I get any sort of feedback from my colleagues, my ex-colleagues that are in the are still in the the police, it's it's usually negative sort of feedback about the way it's going. So I don't really keep up with too much, but I can't see. I mean, from a resource point of view, around where we live, like there just isn't. And I don't appreciate we don't get much crime where we live, but there still is an element of crime. But I don't ever see um, any anyone ever really.
0: Well, <laughs> we need to we need to dispel this myth that there are loads of coppers because. There are one million. There are one million nine hundred thousand people living in Essex, and there's three thousand two hundred coppers. How much is that per head? As, as, as pennies. If you look in pennies mm. in a pound, that's pennies in a pound, isn't it? You know, you're not. Yeah. You're not going to get. And uh, if you take away those people that have got desk-bound jobs, yeah, you take out your top tier, your chief constable, and everything else. You take out your superintendents and your chief inspectors. And to a lesser extent, your inspectors, then you take out your major crime, mm. your counter terrorism, your policing, Road policing, um domestic violence teams, mm. sexual defenses teams. who is actually doing the front line, meeting and greeting attending burglaries, shoplifters, and all the things that are hitting the in hitting the the TV at the moment?
1: I don't know. I actually don't know. I mean, I don't think. I mean, I oh, did you watch that to catch a copper the other day? No. Yeah. So I watched it, and I, I still talked to my one of my my best friend, best man in my wedding, still in the job, still works in the city, and I messaged him after, and I said, I wish I hadn't watched that really, because um, it's just highlighting like terrible behaviour um, by inexperienced coppers that probably shouldn't be out there deployed. It was, um, it was really bad, really, really bad. And it just began, but every time I see something police related, I mean, uh, the, the media don't help. I mean, I, the one time I do flick on and off a of sky News is usually when I get like a five minute break in the day. And every time I, f- I flipped on there, I saw one the other day, it was a uh, police officer having sex with, with a, a inebriated woman or something like that. But there's never any positive news. But there never was when I was in the job. It, it was always getting bashed. And everyone was just getting, they just bashed the police.
0: And they take great delight in it. And, and I've got to yeah. say, that, that thing to catch a copper, some friends of mine who, you know, they've the, the sort of had senior roles, they said that if the supervisors and the managers had been stronger people, yeah. and I haven't seen the program, so I can't comment on what the, but had they been stronger, these problems may not have taken place. These the officers may have been pushed in the right direction. I don't know.
1: I don't know. I, I mean, I watched it and I, yeah, I, well, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the quality, of the caliber of the officer is. Is officers that are coming through? That's the, that's the thing. The behaviour on there was terrible. It was yeah. disgusting. It was just disgusting. It was just it, you just wouldn't. It's just the behaviour that you wouldn't expect of someone in that job.
0: But you you know the, and I've said this before as well if there was ever a charge, a discipline charge of gross stupidity, mm. yeah. that is sometimes the most appropriate charge because they've got to stop shooting themselves in the foot. Mm. So everything that goes on is, I say everything, but most of it is avoidable. Mm. You know, taking photographs at scenes, doing social media at scene, doing all the stuff that you wouldn't, you wouldn't they wouldn't put their mother or father through it. No. so why do they think it's okay to treat a member of the public that way and it's
1: just sure? were you talking about that one where they took the the photos of the the murder victim in the park yeah, yeah that was appalling uh...
0: and they deserve everything they get you know it's just yeah. but anyway well listen i'm going to thank you for your time this evening well, you and
1: listen I... to me alive, lot haven't you so i, I do i i realized after that i've just all i've done is just spew and you brought up a lot of childhood trauma now so i'm all, I'm all traumatized oh, no, no, i don't want i'm joking i'm joking a lawsuit around ptsd no what i'm joking So though
0: i'm very grateful for your candor because it is you know there is no doubt that, that that was a difficult part of your life and i think that um some say that this is a cathartic process you know they see me yes. as the fat counselor and um you know, it, uh, it, but I'm very grateful for your your time this evening. And I, I say this to everybody. But is there anything you'd like to add, alter, or correct in relation to the statement that you've made today?
1: Okay, It makes it sound as though I'm uh, I'm I'm making a formal commitment to everything that I've said. Um, no, I mean I think I've given you I've given you as as real perspective my uh, my real and honest perspective of of what it's like, what it was like for me in the job, my experience in the job, which largely was actually a brilliant experience which crafted me to be who I am today. Like I can't, I, I sometimes I sit there and bitch about it. But then as soon as I think about it and actually think about the experiences, what it's done, the people I've met and where it's brought me to today, I'm I'm thankful for it. It's, It was an experience in my life that I needed, although at some points I didn't like. So. It's um yeah. Would I encourage people? To, would I encourage my kids to join the police today? No. Being brutally honest, my my three girls, I wouldn't encourage them to join the police. Um, I'd encourage them to stay out of harm's way. Um, but did I love it? Yeah, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was brilliant. So,
0: well, listen, you're a good man. Keep in touch. Okay. Um, if there's anything you need, if I can help you in any way. The phone is on but I, I will be in touch with you and i'll be taking you out for a cup
1: of tea love that yeah
0: but not a hot
1: curry yeah not a hot curry i can't do a hot curry uh, <laughs> bless you take care have a lovely thanks. evening and Thank i'll
0: you. meet you when you're older <laughs>
1: all right see you in a bit yeah god bless you. You.
0: thanks so much for listening to this episode of paul maliri's x job downloaded please like follow and share with all your friends Your support is absolutely invaluable and makes a real difference to me as a podcaster.